house, we, we read a lot. And uh, because we love to read, we have invested in a sizable children's uh, book library, if you could say that. And we have uh, wonderful collections of books, wonderful individual books. You know, we have all the, most of the Clifford books and, and the Little Critter books, which are so fun, and the uh, Franklin and all those. But if there's any uh, series that we continue to go back to time and time again, it is that series of books from the late 70s into the 80s, The Berenstein Bears. I don't know a kid in the world who doesn't like the Berenstein Bears. I, uh, as a child, remember reading them with, with, my, uh, with my mom, and, and now I enjoy reading them with my kids. And um, even though every kid can probably relate to uh, every single one of their stories, my favorite growing up, and even the one that I love reading to my kids, in fact, I read this just the other day to either Jude or Lydia, I don't remember which one it was, but uh, called Double Dare. Now, I'm not sure if, uh, if kids today um, use this vernacular, but back in the 80s and 90s, if someone dared you to do something, like, you know what that meant. And if you didn't want to do what they were asking you to do, they would say, I double dare you. And we knew what a double dare meant, and it wasn't just a really cool game show on Nickelodeon. It was that they were putting you up to a, a challenge. It was peer pressure. It meant temptation to do something nefarious. Um, but uh, in Double Dare, Brother Bear gets wound up with this bad crowd. He's got this, this, uh, the bully of the town named Too Tall Grizzly, and he's got this gang, and he goes to defend his sister and ends up sort of joining Too Tall's gang, and they go around the neighborhood, and they finally end up at Farmer Ben's watermelon patch, and, and uh, they want to initiate him into the gang, and so they want him to steal a watermelon. And so brother's like, no, this is Farmer Ben's patch. I'm not going to go and, and, and take it. So what do they say? They say, I dare you. And he doesn't move. And then he says, I double dare you. And brother still doesn't move. And then he says, I de-double dare you. And of course, that's what does it, right? Uh, I don't remember ever hearing de-double dare growing up. I don't know where I came from. It was I double dog dare you. I don't know if that's how it was for, for others as well. But it's a lighthearted story that gets the point across very well that temptation is hard to handle whether or not you are a child or whether you are uh, an adult. Being dared or double dared or even double dog dared is something that we encounter every day. It comes from outside forces or it comes from within. We always have that proverbial angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other whispering into our ears whether or not we should do what is in our minds to do. And although we may recognize these struggles and sin in our lives, rarely do we think about the seriousness with which these things uh, carry with them. Jesus recognized this seriousness of temptation when he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. After teaching them how not to pray, 
and how teaching uh, how, to, how to pray in light of the fatherhood and the sovereignty and the holiness of God and, and how to pray in understanding that God is the one who provides everything for us and, and to pray in light of God being the one who uh, gives us forgiveness that we desperately need. Jesus ends his teaching by telling us that we need to pray earnestly that we may not enter into temptation. And if we do enter into temptation, that God would deliver us from the evil that can inevitably result in temptation. If we want vibrant prayer lives, or if we want to even just live a life that is holy and pleasing to our Lord, there are two things that we need to be mindful of in this passage, and that's Firstly, that we need to pray for God's protection from tempting circumstances. Pray for God's protection from tempting circumstances. In mathematics, now I'm no mathematician, I make no qualms about that, but I do know that there's this important principle called the order of operations. And the order of operations tells you the order of steps um, in the expressions that you need to take uh, when there is more than one operation. So, for example, in order to solve a problem, you first have to work out the operations inside the parentheses or the brackets. Then you solve any exponents. From there, you go on to multiplication or division from left to right. And I believe after that, then you can do the addition and subtraction that comes from it. Failure to follow the order of operations will result in getting a wrong answer in your math problem. And I hope I got that right because <laughs> any mathematicians, did I get that right? I did? Okay, yes. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he follows an order of operations, and it isn't hard and fast. It's not as if Jesus is saying, if we don't follow this order that he is teaching us to pray, that God isn't going to listen to our prayer. That's not what he's saying here at all. But rather, Jesus is providing a logical model. He starts with the uh, acknowledgement of God the Father. That if we fail to acknowledge him first and foremost, uh, then we have no idea who we're even praying to. As he moves from there, he asks us to pray both for our needs, uh, spiritual and physical. Based on this, uh, we have to see that it is significant that the very last thing that, that Jesus teaches us is about temptation. And the reason for that is twofold. First of all, we uh, often diminish the danger uh, that we are in when we face temptation, or secondly, we think that we are strong enough in order to face the temptation and come out on our own strength. In fact, we can make uh, the argument that temptation is so serious that Jesus wants us to plead with God the Father that we wouldn't even be brought near to temptation. In the first part of verse 13, Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation. The main reason why Jesus desires us to pray that the Lord would not lead us into temptation is that he recognizes the, the power of temptation and the results of temptation to destroy our lives. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. 
lays out the progression. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Sin has an agenda. In Genesis chapter 4, when Cain is furious that God did not accept his, his offering, the Lord warns him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary or for you, but you must rule over it. Catch the wording there. Its desire is to ruin you. It is to take you out. And further, the, the, the Bible is clear that to be in sin is to be in bondage. Jesus said in chapter eight, uh, John chapter 8, verse 34, he said, Truly, truly I say to you, um, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So to pray then, to pray lead us not into temptation, is to confess our inability to fight temptation on our own and plead with the Lord that we want life and to be spared from being in the position of being in temptation. This teaching is not without controversy, however. It immediately should bring up the uh, the question in our mind on whether or not God is even able to tempt us. Because if it's not something he's able to do, then why are we praying for it? How can we reconcile Jesus' teaching with what James says in James chapter 1, verse 13? James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. How do we view this in light of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, just a couple chapters before our verse today, where it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil? Does it not seem like there's a contradiction here? Doesn't it seem like Matthew is saying, both here in chapter 4 and in the Lord's Prayer, that the Lord can indeed lead us into temptation, and James says that he doesn't tempt anyone. Perhaps what we need to do here is we need to take a couple steps back and see how one event can be used simultaneously by two different parties for different purposes. It is clear that God does not desire any of us to fall into sin and be out of relationship, be out of, uh, out of, of uh, his, uh, his will. Satan, on the other hand, would love for us to fall into sin, temptation, so is it not possible then that one single situation can be used as a test 
from God that can be used as a temptation from Satan. Take the temptation for, uh, of, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, for example. We just read verse 1, which said that Jesus was led up to the Spirit, by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Obviously, this was a test, and it was a temptation. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Who did the tempting? wasn't God. It was Satan. True, the Holy Spirit led him there, but it is, not, is it not clear in the context of the temptation of Christ that God was also tempting him, uh, that God, well, but that was a faux pas, that God was testing him to prove that God was his father and not Satan. He was testing his faithfulness. Now, I know the difference between a test and a temptation. I've got 20 years of schooling behind me. I've taken a lot of tests. The purpose is to prove that I'm competent in whatever area that I'm being tested in. On the other hand, I also have 39 years of experience with temptation. My flesh wants to take in as much sugar as I possibly can. When I see that there are cookies out, especially Cindy's cookies. If you've ever had Cindy's cookies, they're the best cookies I've ever had, ever. And when I see things like that, I, wanna, I sort of feel like I become the cookie monster. I, I don't care about anyone else. I just want to gobble them all up. So imagine with me, I am sitting at a table in a room with a glass of milk and a plate full of Cindy's cookies. I know that if I take those, well, for one, I'll be putting in a, a lot of calories. I'll be having a lot of sugar, which won't make me feel very good if I eat all of these things. And I know that I might feel guilty because I've eaten all of them and I haven't left any for anybody else. But what if I got up and I walked away and I walked out of that room because I realized I knew the, the, the caloric intake that I'd be taking by eating this entire plate. I knew how I would feel emotionally. I knew how I, knew how I would feel spiritually. And so um, I overrode that fleshly desire to just pig out. So there's a difference there between the temptation and the test. They are simultaneously happening at the same time. God does not tempt us, but he might lead us into situations by which temptation is possible. But in his eyes, it is not a temptation. It is a test. But the problem is, is that life is not like sitting at a table in a room with milk and cookies. Whether we are in a test from God or a temptation from the devil is a matter of life 
and death. It is sitting across from the table, uh, sitting across the table from that bottle of vodka that you've been struggling with. It is being alone with someone in a room of the opposite sex that you are not married to and that you are attracted to. It is looking at your tax forms and knowing that if you just fudge a couple of numbers, it could be the difference between a a, a nice return or paying in. It is being alone in front of a computer or a mobile device and and wondering if this website that... uh, that you're thinking about getting into would actually bring you fulfillment and bring you pleasure. It's looking at your bank account outside of the casino and wondering if maybe we can just help out our family a little bit. It's thinking about saying what you really want to say to that person that hurt you so much that you can just give them a verbal zinger. It is whether or not you'll let that conspiracy theory fester in your mind instead of thinking the best of others. It is whether or not you should sit on the couch all night and watch television or spend time with your spouse. Temptation is so prevalent in our lives that Jesus' teaching makes sense. Lead us not into temptation. Father, keep me away from these things. I don't care if it's a test or a temptation or or whatever it is. I just want to live a quiet and a faithful life. So, Lord, please, lead me not into temptation. And we need to be mindful, though, because it is true that God right now is protecting you from 10,000 things that you are not aware of. He also answers his prayer through our prayer through us. There is responsibility when it comes to avoiding temptation. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus took his disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, and he'd be dead within 12 hours. And he wanted them to pray with him. In the middle of the night, just like many of us would do, dare I say all of us, They succumbed to droopy eyes. But in that moment, Jesus taught them and us something profound about prayer and temptation and our responsibility. Verses 40 through 41 said, And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Did you catch those two things? Watch out. Avoid it. You, you need to be on alert. You need to be on guard. But on the same token, pray that you may not enter into it. See, God is pleased when we see our frailty and when we come to realize the danger that we are constantly in 
and cry out to him to keep us from this. He is, he is pleased when we ask him to save us from this. I wish that I could say that I would know how I would react or respond to certain situations, but I can't. I don't trust my heart enough. And you shouldn't trust yours either. Therefore, we need to pray that God would protect us from temptation. And second of all, we also need to pray for deliverance when temptation comes. Pray for deliverance when temptation comes. We need to pray that God would keep us from these dangers. And as he does, John Piper famously quoted something that I just said a minute ago, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. We have absolutely no idea what God is keeping us from. Right now, as we're sitting here, we can only know a few of them. Just knowing one of them is reason enough to praise him for all eternity. But God always, he doesn't always keep us from temptation, does he? We can't live in this sinful world avoiding 100% of the temptations that are possible for us. There's nowhere that we could go. There's nowhere that we could hide. Nothing that we can do to keep it at bay. The monastic movement that began all the way back in the third century continues to show us today that we can't escape evil and danger in this world. The monastic movement was originally uh, contrived in order to escape uh, the world and live in seclusion and asceticism in a monastery with other monks so that you could be alone with your thoughts and alone with God and that the world would have no influence on you and you'd separate, be separate from all of those things. What they missed, however, was that temptation and evil, though it existed in the world, it is alive and well in the human heart. Yeah, you could escape outside influence. You can shut your door. You can live in isolation or quarantine or whatever you want to call it, but it is not going to keep our hearts from pride and greed and sexual thoughts and selfishness and so many other things. So, we would do ourselves a disservice if we thought that we could avoid temptation and evil completely. And we would do ourselves a favor if we recognized temptation in our lives and fled from it. Now, to do that, we should dissect temptation just a, a little bit and, how, and see then how we can turn from temptation, which inevitably leads into sin. The first thing that we need to know about temptation is its origin. We must realize and recognize that temptation is a tool that is used by the enemy, Satan, the devil, to cause a separation between us and God. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, it doesn't explicitly use the word temptation. But just a, a simple reading of Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the serpent came to Eve and deceived her 
tempted her and her husband to take of the fruit that they were not supposed to take of. Matthew chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3 both call Satan the tempter. That's the name that they give to him. The Hebrew word for Satan is hasatan, which literally means the accuser. And isn't it true that even when accusations of sin come our way, whether or not they're true, it's rem- and it, it reminds us of our past, and it tempts us to live in despair and regret and remorse. So in one sense, temptation comes from the devil. But second, temptation is far broader than we think. We hear all the time on the news people who commit heinous acts against others. They will use the excuse, well, the devil made me do it. And maybe he did. Or maybe they have a mental illness that they need to be treated for. But the Bible is also very clear that when we do something sinful, we cannot use the excuse, it was the devil. Because the Bible is clear that we have two other enemies that are far more prevalent in our lives than the devil alone. We have the world and we have the flesh. And when we talk about the world, we're not talking about this big uh, ball that we're standing on that is spinning at a thousand miles an hour that we're kind of sucked to by the force of gravity, but rather we are talking about the world's system, system of thoughts, the cultural beliefs and practices that are opposed to God, his will and his ways. And let's be honest. The world has some things in it that are very alluring to attract us to. Money, power, fame, sex, status, stuff, and so much more attempt us to abandon the Lord for lesser things. We must remember James chapter 4, verse 4, which tells us, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the father, uh, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we have to see that the world has a very seductive force that is constantly calling to us, come to me, come to me. But perhaps the most important tempter of all is the one that we see in the mirror every day. There's no one who influences you more than you do because there's no one that talks to you more than you do. And when it comes to the ultimate responsibility of whether or not you are in a temptation or whether you are in a test, is you. 
Again, James puts it this way. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Not Steve's, not Johnny's, not Susie's. Then desire, when it conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully, uh, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You see, we can delude ourselves and believe that we have enough self-control to fight these things. Or we can cling ourselves to the mercy of God to deliver us from temptation. He alone is powerful enough to give us the ambition, to give us the desire, and to give us the control to flee such things. Jesus asks, uh, Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from evil, because it is in prayer that our hearts connect with God's word and brings us to the place where we see God as far more glorious, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more beautiful, more worth pursuing than those other things that we face. God's power works through our delight in him to see him as better than anything else. Think of the story of Joseph, which we're going to start here, starting next week. When he was a servant of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife seduced him day after day after day after day, and the opportunity was there. And how did Joseph react? He said to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me besides you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, Jacob, uh, Joseph's love and fear of the Lord was the catalyst that gave him the ability to resist this temptation and flee. Hebrews chapter 11 shows us how Moses employed this. In, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So then Proverbs 9.10 is correct when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is incredibly insightful when it says that no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What is the escape a lot of the time? 
seeing the Lord as far more attractive than sin. It is surrounding yourself with people who love the Lord and will keep you accountable for your love for him. You know, when the war on drugs began, they did an experiment with lab rats. And they gave two bottles of water in the cage. One was just regular water, and the other was water mixed with cocaine. And what they found was that the rats gobbled down the water with cocaine and didn't touch the other bottle with just normal water. And so they concluded that drugs are terrible and anyone that touches drugs will uh, ruin their lives. However, a few years ago, they, they redid the experiment. And again, they put one bottle of regular water and they put another bottle of water with cocaine, but this time they added a rat paradise. They gave him things to do, a wheel to run on, toys to play with, things to climb, ways to keep occupied. And they found that they never touched the water with cocaine anymore. They only went to the regular water. And the reason why, in the first one, is because they didn't have a choice. That's all they knew. The cocaine occupied their, their time and their thoughts. But when they had something far better, a meaningful alternative... They resisted. When we are left to ourselves without God, all we're going to want is that tainted water of sin. We will delight in bringing, uh, bringing on whatever vice the temptation leads to. It might feel good for a while, but it will ultimately lead us to ruin. But when we see the Lord as beautiful and providing us with everything we need in a better plan, we are drawn to his goodness. The Lord is the ultimate anti-drug. He gives us a reason to resist temptation. He gives us a reason for hope. He gives us a new life. And this is all because he has given us himself in Christ Jesus. In Christ we see the one who lived, the one who died, the one who was raised, and the one who is ascended so that through faith we can now cry out, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because we are made right with God the Father through Jesus, the Father hears us and he delights to give us something better than temptation's results. He gives us more and more of himself. Every one of us knows what Brother Bear felt like when Tootal and his gang brought him to Farmer Ben's watermelon patch. Every day in our mind we hear them chanting, But in Christ, 
We don't have to listen because we hear a different voice. One that says, pray then like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I double dog dare you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known